in a vague introductory <laughs> way. Uh, let's start with, do you remember when uh, Baker would always start every play in our Shakespeare like intro class where he just like would open the floor? Right. Or maybe not even open the floor, but just like talk about like the perception, what we come, the cultural condensation around uh, <laughs> whatever play. Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, so I've read Ulysses and I've spent plenty of time thinking about and reading about Ulysses, mm-hmm. uh, but you haven't, right? Correct. Have you tried reading Ulysses? Because that happens sometimes. I did start it and I did get it years ago, but I have not read it. How far did you get into it when you started it last time? Uh, I have it marked, actually, I can tell you. Um, 37 pages. Oh, <laughs> so that would be like the second or third vo- the second or third uh, episode. Oh, it's the first. Those are one. all the the like. Oh, <laughs> I guess it depends on your. I think it's the first one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's still the well, first. Well, then you're first starting one. pretty fresh. Yes. So yeah, you can at least do this. Um, yeah. So tell me about. Yeah. What What are you going into Ulysses thinking? Uh, I guess it's a little bit colored by the fact that we've read everything he published before then. Well, and, you know, I I have, a long time ago, I read a really short biography about James Joyce. It was one of those sort of, um, I don't know if, we might have talked about it before, but one of those kind of sets of biographies where it's like, oh, famous people, you know, and then uh, it's it's short and written by the same person or whatever, um, who wrote about Napoleon, you know in the same series of books or whatever. Okay. So not necessarily, you know, an exhaustive um, biography or anything. And then, um, you know, I read the intro to Dubliners, and I have seen a documentary about James Joyce on YouTube. So I definitely have perceptions from that. I'd never read him in school or anything, which is, I guess, it's kind yeah. of odd, isn't it? Um, I feel like they should have... I read anything other than... A couple of stories in school. Yeah, maybe I read stories, but I don't recall any. Um, All right, so one of the things that stands out is that it was banned. So I'm aware of that. Mm -hmm. And I know it was banned in, I guess, America longer, right, than Europe? Yeah. Or I don't know if it was officially banned in Europe. I think it was, though, in certain places. And, uh, like, Uh, I think it was banned in. The UK yeah, for a little bit, but yeah, it was banned in America for a whole decade, for 11 years. And there was a court case, um, or, which... Or prudishness. There was a court case in, uh, you know, that's famous, I guess, that they discussed in the, the introduction. 1933, I believe. So um, it was published in Paris yeah, in 1922, and then published in America, or allowed to be published in America only in 1933, right. if I remember correctly. Um, so I know that about it. That's kind of a famous thing of it. And, uh... And it helps us get through the depression. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, you so... can't prove that it did it. <laughs> I know that... It, kind of the the things that we've discussed about James Joyce's personal, um, life I'm aware of, kind of, when he was writing it, you know, I just imagined him being, uh, a recluse obsessed with this book. That's one thing I think that mm-hmm. sort of the cultural condensation around it is his obsession with it and making it 
a masterpiece. It's taking a lot of time on yeah. it. Um, and also that it's difficult to read, I think, would be an assumption that I would have. Yeah, that's, I think, what I was assuming we were going to get to. Okay, good. Yeah, um, <laughs> Ulysses started, I was going to be something like Bloom in Dublin or Ulysses in Dublin, a story for Dubliners. Right. Um, it was like an idea he had in like 1905, 1906 or something. Obviously expanded a little bit out of that. Um, and yeah, it was kind of like knocking around, I assume, for the next eight to nine years when he was writing or working towards publishing uh, Portrait of the Artist of the Young Man. And then he started to actually settle down to write it in 1914. Um and then it took him eight years to finish. So he published it in 1922. Um, so yeah, you're right. It was kind of like a pretty long obsession of his and his kind of conception. I mean, with a, with a, you know, something that's being baked that long, um, his conception of some things in the book kind of changed as he was writing it. Um, Anthony Burgess talks about how like, some way through writing the book, Joyce decided to write the passages so that they like would take place in almost real time as you read them. Huh. But like uh, uh, an, an episode that's taking place from 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. or something would take like an hour to read, hypothetically. Um, but that that conception only came partial part of the way through the book, so it's not necessarily the case of like the early the the telemachiad the first three uh episodes or even some of the earlier episodes um and yeah it is there are moments that i guess are uh not yeah it's, it's not necessarily you know dickens or something you can just pick up um there is plenty of uh stream of conscious there's the what some would call interior monologue, but what uh, Stuart Gilbert, I like his phrase for it, where he calls it silent monologue. You know, we walk around with Leopold Bloom just like hearing his thoughts, um, which, yeah, that, 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 that silent monologue we all have uh, with ourselves, to ourselves, from ourselves as we walk around the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just this capacious, um, every every thought that Leopold Bloom has, you know, when he's walking into this church that he's not a member of or whatever. Um, how does he so, how, how does he encapsulate that in, in, like, I mean, how do you put that in a net, you know, how, how people think and walk around? I, so, yeah, this is, this is one thing that is a, is a possible criticism of the interior monologue stream of conscious writing, um, which is that, or it's one I've seen that, like, we don't really think in, you know, like, just a horizontal, like, one, like, uh, on one track. Uh, a human is thinking at one time on, like, you know, 40 different levels, unconsciously we're working through something and kind of vaguely consciously we're working through something else and explicitly consciously we're reading emails or whatever, you know? Right. Um, whereas 
if you're transcribing that down to, you know, I'm walking into a bookstore and buying a porn book for my wife, uh, there's, it all has to be kind of flattened out into one. That's true. Um, so you, you can't really do all of that at once. It's, it's kind of like uh, trying to smush down like a symphony. You know, like if you've ever seen like the director's notes for a symphony where it's like he, has, he or she has, you know, all of the parts on the same page, you know, what the percussion is supposed to be doing, what the oboe is, you know what I'm saying? Um, where they have, you know, every single part on the same page and they're kind of going right. left to right on. Because if you you're know, an oboe, you only have the oboe sheet. Different lines. Right. So we're just getting, like, all of that in one, hypothetically. Um, so, yeah, it's not necessarily representative. Um, it's not necessary for, for, for all of the kind of, um, yeah, for, for how realistic it is, um, compared to kind of like a more romantical kind of, uh, more abstracted narrative that, you know, just, uh, yeah, like some Dickens, <laughs> I don't, I don't mean to be like railing on Dickens, but yeah, some easier to read piece of fiction. Um, and it's way less realistic and just kind of, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times, you know. Uh, where, where here we're kind of getting more granular. It's, it's, it's still going to necessarily be missing something. But, um, for Joyce, I, I would say that he's, he's not necessarily trying to represent, you know, uh, the full harm, like compendium of the, uh, or not, not necessarily at every moment trying to, to represent the full compendium of, 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 of interior thought and interior suggestion and non-thought and those thoughts that or those like ideas that one has that can't be put into words or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, every moment of interior monologue is kind of, uh, yeah, it's serving some, some, some stylistic purpose, some, some thematic purpose for that specific entry and the whole thing isn't necessarily i mean there's plenty of it that isn't told in interior monologue um there will be whole episodes that are told in like the style of like newspapers or there's a whole thing that's like uh it's like a like a like a girl's magazine like a seven like a teenage magazine and there's like a whole chapter the if i remember correctly one of the uh Either the penultimate, no, or maybe it's two before the end. Um, it's told as like a, uh, what do you call it? The catechism question and answer thing. Um, yeah, plenty of it is not told as just like, and some of it's dramatic presentation. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of different styles, one of which is interior monologue. Um, and so interior monologue itself is a style that it's serving like a specific purpose within whatever entry, whatever uh, episode that it, it's, it, 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 it is, um, not necessarily just like a re- representation of everything that's happening in the human brain at any specific moment. I, I realized that was like a way different answer than like what you were actually asking. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of different styles going on and there's like a whole chapter it's going to be like a parody of every type of English literature, significant literature that, that Joyce found significant. Um, 
so yeah, there's like a yeah, there's um, something Stuart Gilbert says or quotes that like I forget exactly. Uh, I think it's French. This or I'll say this style is the theme of each episode. Um, to some extent, the style of the episode is giving us like yeah clear clues into the the theme of that specific moment. Um, but yeah, uh, <laughs> that was a, that was a much different answer than I than I think you were you were going. For. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a, that's a good thing to bring up, though, because is it true that every chapter is a different style? Uh, a separate style, I mean. Every separate. chapter... One, one thing that... Uh, they're not exactly all different. There are a couple... I'm looking at the list of techniques that he uses. There are at least, like, three more narrative chapters. Uh, most of them are, like, a, at least a slightly different technique. Um... So I am currently looking at something called a study by, or it's just James Joyce's Ulysses, a study by Stuart Gilbert, who actually worked with Joyce on this study. And like Joyce would give him little coy suggestions, like, have you read this book by Briard or whatever? Um, which was a suggestion that, yeah, I, I, James Joyce read that book or Isis Unveiled or something. Um, and you know, used 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 that uh, in, in or, or that informed my thinking on writing the book. Um, and so, yeah, there's there's just a page of all the different techniques: of narrative, or personal catechism, monologue, which is what we think of as like interior monologue. And then the last chapter is what's called female monologue, which is the famous Penelope in bed or uh, Molly Bloom in in bed. Um, yeah, there, there's like a slightly different, I would say like a slightly different style in most of the chapters, in most of the episodes. Um, Ulysses, the Odyssey, obviously, you know, this is like a, like a riff, a modernish riff on the Odyssey. A lot of the, or the episodes kind of, um, have parallels to moments that happen either in the Odyssey or around the Odyssey, around the story of uh, Odysseus. The beginning, the first three entries, or the first three episodes, are part of what Joyce and all his uh, compadres called, like, a, the Telemachiad. Do you know Telemachus, the son of Odysseus? Um, these are kind of like a connection between Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man and uh, Ulysses, like, proper. So the first three entries will be Stephen Daedalus, kind of going about his morning, and then we meet Leopold Bloom, uh, the magnificent Leopold Bloom, the capacious Leopold Bloom, the uh, sexual deviant Leopold Bloom. There's a lot to, there's a lot to say about Leopold Bloom. Um, our, our, our Ulysses, our Odysseus, um, James Joyce called Odysseus the, I forget exactly his term, but I think he said he's the fullest of the heroes, hmm. which makes some sense because he was kind of not written by a person. It was, uh, I, 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 I think scholars pretty much agree that it was just like a, tale. a tradition that, um, 
was worked upon and added to by all these different all these different songwriters. It was like a uh, yeah, it was just a tale that was handed down and expanded upon and added here or there. Um, this wily, uh, smart, but not like, uh, not, not, not in the Stephen Daedalus way, <laughs> not in the like overly, oh, I mean, uh, yeah, the, the almost like, uh, self-consuming intelligence of Stephen Daedalus, not, not in the like, um, yeah, the, the, the elusive intelligence of Stephen Daedalus, kind of in a more just like, like, uh, intuitive intelligence to Leopold Bloom. Um, we get a, yeah, we, we, we see everything from Leopold Bloom taking a shit to like Leopold Bloom's spiritual connection with Stephen Daedalus, the Leopold Bloom uh, memory or like image of his dead son. Um, and so yeah, yeah, it's kind of like in a day, you know, just like a full, supposed to be like a full, capacious life. Um, just in a, in a 24 hour segment, we follow him from like 8 a.m. to, uh, sometime after midnight. Um, Leopold Bloom and who's a kind of spiritual father to, uh, Stephen Daedalus. Um, one of the themes or yeah, one of the one of the themes that gets mentioned actually literally in the book, metempsychosis, um, or one of the kind of I guess like intellectual underpinnings of the work metempsychosis. Uh, do you recognize that term like reincarnation, the reincarnation of souls? Um, so obviously, like if Leopold Bloom is like a like a like a reincarnation almost of. Odysseus, we're, 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 we're to take that almost like literally. Um, he's not like a literal reincarnation of, of, of Odysseus, but that's kind of like the literary pretension of, of the book. Um, there one kind of like literary conceit of the book that, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's like the very basis of the book is that this is kind of like a retelling of the Odyssey in Dublin in 1904. Uh, where Stephen Daedalus is Telemachus or Telemachus and Molly Bloom is Penelope. Um, there's a lot to the book about metempsychosis and the, yeah, the, the soul's kind of, uh, undying kind of just being poured into the next body or whatever. Um, and along with that, I mean, yeah, just, just to like put that out there, just to put a pin in that. Um, along with that, there, or I, I, yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to say exactly, you know, chicken or the egg. Did James Joyce's sense of being an exile in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, uh, I, I think he calls himself like a foster stepson, foster son, foster. Do you remember that foster sibling to his siblings? Yeah. Um, and his sense of like reincarnate that, that that kind of pretension that kind of conceit of reincarnation which if you're like you know um a reincarnated soul that's just being poured into a, a, a vessel for this you know this 80 years or whatever um you have more of a close connection you don't you're like like it kind of gives a lie to like paternity that's one of the themes of the book 
Um, cause again, we're, 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 uh, dealing with a spiritual father, father, uh, spiritual connection between Stephen Daedalus and Leopold Bloom. The whole book is kind of leading up momentously to the lightning strike when they meet. Um, but we are reminded that, you know, Stephen Daedalus has a dad. He has a literal father who's, you know, like we saw last time, we saw him portrait the artist as a young man. He's like a, he's a, he's a nice guy. He's like a charming, um, Gilbert calls him like the most charming person in the book. I don't know necessarily. Um, but yeah, he's, he's like an, he's like not horrible person or something. Right. Um, but yeah, Stephen Daedalus and James Joyce, uh, kind of felt this kind of sense of exile, this kind of sense of otherness, or what, however you want to put it. Um, and so, yeah, there's this kind of sense of, I think he calls himself like a fairy child or something in, in uh, Portrait of the Artist of the Young Man. Um, and so along with the idea of metempsychosis is a kind of idea that, like, uh, the myth of fatherhood, which is a literal thing uh, that... that, that uh, we'll talk about in the book. Um, and so, yeah, if you're, you know, just like a reincarnated soul, like, like your father doesn't matter as much, you know, um, your, 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 your father is just like a physical, like, uh, and, or like a vessel. Um, whereas you're like more linked to all the different incarnations of yourself that came before and will come after. Um, and so, yeah, uh, just putting all of that out there <coughs> at the beginning, uh, cause we'll get, we'll keep like coming back to it and coming back to it. Um, but yeah, all of that kind of like streams out of just like the very conceit of the book. Like I said, that it's a riff on the Odyssey that, you know, th this is like a modernization of the Odyssey. It's not just like, what if the Odyssey happened in Dublin during one day that happened to, coincide with the day James Joyce went on a walk with his girlfriend for the, or with his future wife for the first time. Um, yeah, there's this kind of deeper spiritual uh, implication to that idea of a modern riff on, on, on Ulysses, um, where it all kind of tunes out. But, I mean, you don't have to necessarily, I, I mean, I don't even know if Joyce, I, I doubt that Joyce really, like, explicitly believed in any, like, theosophical the kind of Yeatsian, like, Yeats literally, like, we talked about it a little bit last week when we were talking about Yeats. Um, Yeats, like, literally believed in a lot of, like, cuckoo banana shit, uh, whereas Joyce kind of appropriates it as, like, uh, literary conceit. Um, Joyce is in this, like, interesting time for uh, literature and this interesting, interesting time for him. Uh, he's a literal, you know, like, he's an apostate. Um, but yeah, there's this interesting, like, 70 year period, I guess. Uh, and I'm not going to put an actual answer on that. Uh, like, where, I mean, there were, like, Christian authors, but a lot of the literature is being written by post Christian people, like, say, George Eliot or somebody. Um, she was, like, at this, at this early part where she still had felt this, like, psychological need to have like a Christian ethos to her books, even though she was not a believer. But it's from like 1900 to like 1930 or 40, there's this interesting time where um, people 
we're still still had like something of Christianity or of like spiritual mystery at least right. like, clacking around in their brain like the like the the thing in a in a spray paint can that you shake up, um, but not necessarily being you know dogmatic Christians, right. uh, where that kind of led them be or, or, or allowed them to be open to theosophical or, or you know other esoterical beliefs. Um, either again, literally like. William Butler Yeats thought that when he was doing automatic writing, he was literally being, you know, met by the demon, by the daemon, and he went to seances and believed that he was talking to spirits. Um, or somebody like Joyce, who definitely, I mean, we see him being haunted by God, you know. We see him being haunted by his belief, and he's, like, superstitious against, like I said, superstitious against, like, lightning strikes and thunder and stuff. Um, so he's not, like, a fully... He's a, he's a, he's definitely a, you know a non-believer, um, but he's not like a fully you know skeptical, rational, whatever uh, uh, post, post like post belief person. He's he, he's he's in this kind of interestingly frictional time period of both his life and of 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 world literature. That's both you know. Uh, doesn't believe in fairies, but also like suspects fairies in the bushes. Uh, or doesn't believe in God, but suspects fairies are lingering in the bushes, or however I would put that. Um, and so, yeah, we get Ulysses. <laughs> um, yeah, let's, let's go through questions, because I, I, I kind of I talk too much. What are, what are questions you have going into the book? So my my question about the connection to the Odyssey is, do you think that was more of a uh, an attempt to prove something? In other words, to say, you know, I'm a great writer, or was it sort of just an idea he had that uh, yeah. that was interesting to him? Well, like I said, he thought the he thought uh, Odysseus was something. I forget exactly the term, but I think he said something like he was the fullest of the heroes. For one thing, I mean, like a epic poem that follows one character, that's a lot of one character. That's, you know, like probably several novels worth of incident. Um, and so, yeah, that was fertile ground to be working with. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I think uh, there's a little bit of like putting himself, because I mean, that that is like a, that is, he is like calling a shot. You know, everyone reads, you, you, at least everyone reads like part of the Odyssey in school. Right. Um, he's not adapting, let's say, uh, unread play by William Shakespeare that nobody reads, uh, like some people like to do. Um, he is kind of, yeah, there's, there's not much like... Uh, above the Odyssey as far as, you know, uh, cultural cachet and legacy and uh, it's the second oldest thing in Western literature and it's probably, you know, uh, just about behind Shakespeare or something, you know, second most, like, studied um, or one of the more studied pieces of, of, of literature. So, yeah, it's a very confident move and he's definitely, like we've talked about, he's, he's super arrogant so it's super confident uh probably arrogant and 
very sure of his place in uh, the rankings. So yeah, uh, there's, there's definitely some of that. Or at the very least, yeah, like I was <clears throat> kind of alluding to, you couldn't have written this if you weren't James Joyce and weren't like so certain of your of your status, your stature. Right. Now, remember, when we talked about his biography, he was pretty uh, itinerant and went all over the place, right? So was he um, was he in a good place when he was uh, writing this? At the bottom, it's Paris, Trieste, Zurich. Or Trieste, Paris, Zurich, I forget the order. Um, well, I mean, this is eight years. And yeah. I mean, remember, I said it starts in 1914. <laughs> so <laughs> right. there's some shit that happened. Um what was his? There what was his? Millions con- of people who died for colonial perverts. Okay. Uh, okay. Happening. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, what was his relation to the war? What was what was his relationship to that? Just being in a situation that I was mean, chaotic. He wasn't in the war, right? I mean, Jesus. He wasn't near. I mean, no one would have wanted him to fight the war for them. Right. I think Ireland was officially neutral. Yeah, I think they were officially neutral, and. He was a squirrely 40-year-old, so, yeah, no one, it was terrible eyesight, so, yeah, nobody needed him. Um, but it still made it kind of hard to be an, I mean, he was he was an immigrant in everywhere he lived. Uh, so, yeah, it made it, like, legally difficult. And, I mean, Jesus Christ, millions of people died for kings and and, and like, you know, uh, Kaisers and shit. Uh, just like it's hard to imagine. Um, right. Yeah. Just how how much of a how, how much of a vicarious suffering that would be. Um. Yeah. Like just like I mean, just like reading the last couple last week or whatever about you know Palestine and Israel. It's, that's been kind of distracted. Right. <laughs> that's, you know, several hundred people, several hundred Palestinians getting murdered. So, yeah. Uh, was he in a good place for those eight years? Uh, I guess I not. That was he probably was a dumb not question. Terribly subtle, there, were, there were three, I mean, at the, end of, at the end of the book, there are three cities listed, so it's not like he was... Well, was he satisfied, do you think, though, with his, with his uh, like, was he satisfied with the progress he was making on his work, you think? I mean, was he happy with his choice to, uh, to do what he did, to engage upon this adventure? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't think he had a lot of second thoughts. Right, as you he, said, he as you said, he was very confident. Like second thoughts. Um, and for sure, you know, what we read uh, in both Dubliners and a portrait as of the artist as a young man uh, showed him to be a super strong writer, you know, obviously. So um, it's a fascinating story where he ended up, as we've also discussed. Yeah. Uh, and I right, guess it's um, one of those things that's hard, like you said, kind of about what... It's different than even the dad or something. Like he has such a great career, you know what I mean? Like such a like very he can be he can be so proud of his achievements uh, by the end of his life, you know. Where most writers, I'm sure, don't have that uh, to say for their later works and so forth. Um, And he he was he was dependent upon patrons, right? Kind of. Yeah. Um, So for. 
It's not like yeah, he was a millionaire. For, uh, China, he was getting, I mean, like you said, you couldn't be sold commercially in America. Uh, Shakespeare and Co. could, like, sell to people and they might smuggle it back to America. Um, he eventually was, it was secured for him that he got, like, a thousand pound a year grant um, from the British government. Um do you think but that was, I think, pretty late? Uh, so yeah, he had like patrons, and he had he just like had to borrow money a lot, and he also worked as like a language tutor at a Berlin school. Speaking of that, do you think it's too grand? Or... Actually, tutor. Do you know who Italo Sebo was? No, I don't. The uh, oh well, he tutored Italo Sebo, who was also a, he wrote a great novel called Dino's Conscience, Il Conscientia Divino. Uh, which is great in either English or if you can uh, get through it in the original Italian, is a spectacular little novel. But it's, it's just crazy that he was like helping this guy on his English, uh, who just like showed him his novel, and it was like, oh, he's like, oh, hey, you write novels too. <laughs> um, yeah, it, 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 yeah. Uh, well, that's a charming little story. Who's that famous playwright that okay. was helping him too? Didn't he? he uh, well, that was later on, oh, I think, Beckett. for Finnegan's Beckett Wait. Yeah, friends. that was Finnegan's Wait, though, I think. Beckett was friends with him. Uh, or, like, uh, yeah, he was uh, apprenticed to him or something. Uh, more like in the Finnegan's Wake era. Right. And actually, Beckett, a lot of his... He, he started to, like, write in French and then translate back into English just to get Joyce out of his head or Joyce out of his pen or however you want to put that. Um, he was afraid, like a literal anxiety of influence. Like anxiety of influence is a phrase that hypothetically is 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 talking about unconscious anxiety. But yeah, this is Beckett was enough of a self actualized writer to realize that he was actually scared of sounding like James Joyce. <laughs> so he would write in French and then translate back to English. Oh wow! Yeah. Well, especially if you're actually talking to the guy in conversation. That would be a very difficult oh, thing yeah. to avoid. And like, uh, yeah, writing like defenses of work in progress, which is what they call Finnegan's Wake at the beginning, because he didn't want to give away the title and stuff. Yeah, he was like deeply uh, invested in the late, late Joyce stage that we'll get to. So and Finnegan's Wake is like a highly. Uh, uh, I would say the same thing about that. Ulysses, they're both like very contaminatory works. It's hard to not have them kind of contaminate how you write or think, at least while you're writing or thinking about them. Do you think his goal was basically internally um, to challenge himself as to the the way this style progressed to be so different from the earlier works he did? Um, is that basically what's going yeah, on? Yeah, I think there's, there's a bit of... Yeah, he he was hard to, uh, or it was, it was like very easy for him to just like quit a style, or, or, or I mean, he kind of like went built them into like or got to like the the end of them, built them up as much as they could be, built you know the style of Portrait of the Artist as a young man up to as much as it could be, and was restless and artistically. Uh, confident enough to like move on to something else after that he was 
you know, restless and artistically confident enough to move on past the dead. I mean, you could make a solid career, both, you know, uh, critically and just right, like, like personally, artistically out of writing the dead and the dead style, you know, right, that, exactly. that quality of literature, just like, you know, write a couple of those every year. Uh, yeah. yeah, that, that, that would be, yeah, entirely <clears throat> satisfactory. Uh, Which I was going to say, so is that is that a matter for every writer or for everybody who uh, makes their living as a writer who's lucky enough to do that? Do you think it's just a matter of uh, uh, assessing yourself and understanding where you are in the uh, talent spectrum, maybe? I mean, obviously not everybody can achieve that, even if they want to, even if they take the risk, you know? So, uh, yeah. I mean, what do you think about that? Some people you probably know, also, just know like, where they super, belong, so, right? So, so some of it had to do with, like, a like a self-conception as, you know, he, he you know, thought of himself on that scale um, and some of it is just like a hyper consciousness of style itself. Um, there's something James Woods talks about that like Flaubert made it so that you, everyone was just like hyper conscious of style. Um, and James Joyce takes that, you know, the style is the theme. He takes that to the next level. Um, and Joyce is like very much a apprentice probably surpasses Flaubert, but yeah, an apprentice of Flaubert. Um, and so, yeah, I think some of that is just the, there's like a lot of smoke and a lot of fire just around, just like thinking re a lot about style itself. Um, not just like something unconscious, you know, uh, automatic style. Uh, not to say that, you know, Balzac or Sir Walter Raleigh or whatever, or Jane, Jane Austen succeeded all of that. Um, yeah, not to say that they were writing unstylistically, but that Flaubert made such a fucking uh, bugaboo about, about style, about like writing little perfect little sentences. Uh, that, yeah, it kind of set the stage for hyper-consciousness of style for the next, yeah, forever after, but certainly for the next, you know, 100 years after after Flaubert, next 50 years after Flaubert, certainly anybody who was writing kind of uh, inspired or um, consciously um, do as, you, a, as a, or unconsciously as an apprentice to Flaubert. Do you think people who are artists and don't develop like that are uh, missing something? I, th I like Picasso, for example, you know, you look yeah. at his evolution and I think, you know, I just admire an artist who is committed to evolving, I guess, and challenging themselves. In, yeah. It's like, if you don't do that, really, you can't be relevant or interesting. Yeah. So that's why it's so, it's so rare, I think, to have someone able to be proud of their work by the end of their life. I mean, to an, to, to such a, uh, great degree i mean yeah if people... they're honest about whether or not it was actually you know yeah. exploratory or experimental or actually stretching yeah i think the same of like like bob dylan he famously like <laughs> moved through styles and some of them sucked um but yeah he famously like angered a lot of people when he started playing electric guitar mm. um but yeah some of his best 
songs came while you were playing electric guitar. Um, yeah, I think that's, 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 yeah, I think you're right that, that, uh, an artist who's never like, uh, pushing to something different and weird and strange and possibly, I mean, um, Stephen Dados from Portrait of the Artist talks about like, yeah, like pushing out towards failure. <laughs> um, mm. even if it's, you know, you know, uh, damning his soul, which is kind of a, you know, uh, not necessarily, I mean, that, that, that literally is a talk about art, but yeah, talking about, um, art too, when he's talking about like being, you know, pushing off the shore and, uh, steering towards certain failure. Um, yeah, I agree. I think, I definitely think that, um, if you settle, settling is bad <laughs> and settling into some kind of mode can be horrible. Right. Once you've achieved it, you should just kick off. Well, that I mean, kind of the thing is that uh, few artists, I think, achieve it as thoroughly. Few folk song writers achieved, you know, folk writing, folk song writing as much as like Bob Dylan and Hattie Carroll or something right. or Blowing in the Wind. The same with Picasso. Few people had as blue of a period as his blue period. Few people wrote a short story like The Dead. Um Right. So yeah, it, it kind of just comes from. I, I I think for at least those three that come to mind, it kind of comes also as a natural thing from like they could move on because they. What else? I mean, unless you're willing to bore yourself. Mm. Um, and that comes down like to a, like a completion, kind of a finality to it. Another artist I think of is Duke Ellington, whose style evolved to become, you know, more abstract. Hey, I, I Duke, the time. Sorry, Duke Ellington uh, is another example I oh, can yeah. think of where, you know, it's just, I, I get, like, like you're saying, that these people are inherently, I think, above other people, but I think a lot of artists could challenge themselves to go beyond where they are. And I think this comes down to the argument that I have a lot about what does it mean to sell out, you know, because to me, selling out is not making mm. money, in my opinion, but selling out to settle, like you said, or to be complacent with, with, with what you're yeah. good at. Like if you're a portrait artist and all you do is paint high society for the rest of your life, I mean, that in and of itself can be really yeah. interesting. But if you're, yourself as an individual never stretched beyond that and you just perfected that, I mean, you know, you're, you're no Picasso then, yeah. right? You're not on the same like level. Phineas Sullivan says all art is inherently experimental. Otherwise, it's just, you're just, it's just craft work. Which I mean, there's nothing morally wrong with crafts. There's nothing morally wrong with crafts. Yeah, it's yeah. Just, there's not. That's not art anymore. It's not spontaneous and weird and mm. strange. That um, you know, like Harold Bloom always talks about the the strangeness of greatness. Um, well, kind of like you strange, said, few things are great. So it's strange to be great. Something has to be strange if it's going to be great. Oh, writer, we talked. Okay, I just thought of an example. I thought of an example where it's not disparaging at all. The P.G. Woodhouse we've discussed before, he did the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I think for 70 yeah. years, right? I, I really think he lived yeah. to be 100 and wrote until he was like 99. Oh, yeah, nothing, like nothing wrong with wrong. it. He made like hundreds, at least dozens. I don't know if he made hundreds. So yeah, all you know, equally readable, enjoyable stuff. Yeah, there's nothing. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a choice. <laughs> so that's not like a bad... 
And it's almost a choice to do with your life than entertain people endlessly. Like right. you would have it. But and also yeah, it's way worse for things. I think I think there's, there's a difference you could do with your life. I think there's a difference between say a Bob Dylan and say a Miley Cyrus, where it's like one of them has potential, <laughs> and the yeah, other well, one, like being a pop star, is all you can do. So, you know, if 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 that's the case, then it's different. Yeah. It's it's different too. You know, if P.G. Woodhouse knew his abilities ended at making comic novels, that there's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, but so, yeah. um, but but it is in a different category than James Joyce, who wasn't necessarily yeah. doing it as a job. Obviously, you know what I mean. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway. 